Thank you, Mal, for that reading. Excellent. And as Mal said, this is actually another of um, the servant songs. There's four servant songs in Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 42, this one, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 53, beginning just before Isaiah 53. And uh, this is the second of them, and it marks a bit of a turning point in the way these poems are being told. Here the servant becomes aware that things are not quite working out the way that he had expected or hoped. And we hear this note of ambivalence. And strangely, it's not a note of ambivalence in terms of self-doubt, and it's not a, a note of doubt in God. It's a re-evaluation of what the servant was meant to be all about all along. So we, we hear about Isaiah's view of himself. When you were young, did you imagine your life would be a certain way? Did you think, when I grow up, I will be a something or I will do something? Do you remember that? Some of you have to stretch back a bit further than others. I wonder, I wonder if things turned out the way that you expected. Most often they kind of don't necessarily and that's probably quite a good thing because childhood fantasies aren't always uh, well informed. But for Isaiah, his whole sense of who he was told him that he was to be a prophet. He describes it as being called from his mother's womb. If he'd been asked as a child, what will you be when you grow up? He already was possessed of the idea that he would be a servant of God. He was destined to be a prophet. And not simply some kind of idealized sense of identity of what a prophet might mean. Isaiah also saw himself as having been trained and honed for this prophetic task because the prophet's main instrument is his mouth, the words that he speaks. And Isaiah says that his mouth is like a sharp sword. It functions like a soldier's sword would function for a soldier. The prophet's mouth functions for the prophet. It's like a sharp sword. And Isaiah describes himself as a true arrow, that arrow that is just beautifully straight. Back in the day before we had all these very fancy manufacturing processes, you had to find the right kind of wood and you had to prepare it and whittle it, I imagine. I don't know how they did it. Whittling, maybe. But you'd get some arrows that were just really fantastic. And I reckon that the person using arrows knew that was his best arrow and when he really needed to have a true shot, he went for his best arrow. And Isaiah was saying, I am that arrow, that really true arrow that hits where it's designed to. And there's also something about being hidden here as well. He talks about being a sword concealed in the shadow of the hand or an arrow that is secreted in the quiver, tucked away. And Isaiah, it's as though he sees his true identity as a prophet as hidden from those to whom he is a prophet. They don't see him coming. His uh, prophetic words kind of strike in a way that the people are not able to anticipate their power and they're not able to protect themselves from his message. And here I'm reminded of Jesus' use of parables. You know how Jesus walked around and he told stories? And he would tell stories that people could largely agree with and nod their heads and go, oh yeah, good story, I like the story. Yeah, I know what's going to happen. And then at the end he'd just do a little twist that they didn't see coming and they go, oh, and it kind of exposed their own motives and, and their heart as it were. There would be a punch in it that would grab them. And I think Isaiah sees himself a bit like that. 
But then we get this turn. And I think maybe this is a particularly male perspective, but I think few things are more soul-destroying than spending your whole life working towards something only to feel as though you had failed. I think that's a very, very difficult place to be. And Isaiah, despite this thoroughgoing sense of being called by God, and even though he was very good at his task, by all accounts, when he looked around to see what was to show for his efforts, he said, I've laboured in vain. This is all nothing. Not only had people failed to respond positively to Isaiah, there's every indication that the people actually turned against him. That's kind of understandable. Nobody really likes being critiqued. We all like to believe we're doing the best we can and that we're, you know, at least above 50% and doing all right. But a big part of Isaiah's call to the people was for them to turn away from their self-seeking ways and to learn to trust in the faithfulness of God. And the final servant song in chapter 53 suggests that the people didn't turn to God, they turned against Isaiah. And in this, we hear the premonitions of Christ's crucifixion that was to come, and and people quote this Isaiah 53 when thinking about Jesus, because the same dynamics came into play. The gentle confrontation with the reality of who we are is probably the least welcomed of all confrontations, and we will do anything to resist it and the people resisted it. And just like with Jesus, we see a similar pattern with regard to the audience as well. Isaiah, like Jesus, started as a prophet to Israel. God's chosen were the target audience. The call was to the people to live faithfully as God's people, essentially the call to live according to the call to what they've been called to. You know, just fulfill it, would you, please? You are the people of God, live as the people of God. Yet as Jesus, just as Jesus' uh, audience, Isaiah's audience were spectacularly resistant to the message that was being brought to them. And in this crisis of non-response, it seems to trigger a re-evaluation of the core. Isaiah was faithful to God, and God was faithful to Isaiah and to the the original intent of the call, But it's almost as though the power of the intent was so strong it would not be thwarted by the unresponsiveness of the people he was sent to and it would seek out people who would be responsive. He was to become a light to the nations. And again, we see this same dynamic illustrated by Jesus' parable of the wedding feast. You can look that up in Matthew 22 where he invites there's, he tells a story of a man who's having a wedding, his daughter's getting married, and he invites all these honoured guests to come along, and at the right time he sends his servants out to gather them in. And they go to the various people, and one says, oh, look, I've got a bit of business I've got to do, and the other one says, I've just bought me a, a cow, and someone else says, I've just got married myself, I'm, I'm too busy. And so he sends out more servants and says, come and implore them, this is a big celebration, I need people here, and they make their excuses and people don't come. And then the master sends out the servants and says, just go to the highways and the byways. Whoever you find there, invite them in. We just want to have a celebration. And it's a sense in which the purpose of getting people in to celebrate was so strong, if the ones who were originally invited say no, we'll find someone who will say yes. And that's 
the sense here as well. And so Isaiah's brief extends beyond Israel to the very ends of the earth. That's a bit of uh, flat earth theology there. But that's the way they thought about the earth back then. There were ends to the earth. And so it was the idea that the whole world would be covered. Isaiah's prophetic word, they go unheeded by the people of Judah at the time, but they're so important that he's given a greater commission. The word is not for Israel alone. It is for all those who have ears to hear it. To the very ends of the earth, no one would be excluded from this call, this invitation. Now, this is a bit pre- uh, tricky, I think, because there's not many places where if you fail in your task, you get promoted to a bigger task, right? It's a kind of a, a funny thing. Normally, if somebody hasn't done well in the task that they were given, you say, well, do it again, or maybe you should do a lesser task. But here we have somebody who appears to have failed in their task given even greater responsibility. But we know Isaiah knew that it was God who had called him, God who had formed him. He was fit for the purpose God had called him to, and he would certainly uh, be used according to this purpose. And so the word would go forth and transform whoever it touched. And this authority would cause kings to rise. You know, kings in their authority, they stay seated. When the king is seated, he is the authority. If he rises, that's a sign that he is removing for a greater authority. And princes, they stand tall. But when they bow down, that means there's a greater authority, like the king or the queen, as it were. Now, we know a lot about the kind of authority that functions in the world. It's kind of first nature to us, even if we pretend we don't know. We exercise this authority over one another and we submit to it all the time. It's a set of assumptions that give one person power over another person. It's the authority that says the leader is the law at the moment. So, you know, when the police are doing something, they are the authority and we have to obey them. When the the parliament makes a law, they are the authority and we have to obey it. It's how we structure society and all this kind of thing. But for the last 2,000 years, wherever the gospel has taken hold, a different kind of authority has also been acknowledged, even in and through all our native uh, or natural worldly authorities. Things like the authority of truth. And listen carefully because many of these are fading now as the gospel is losing its influence in our community, but the authority of truth, not my truth, not your truth, but the recognition that there is a truth that is somehow bigger than what I happen to see or what you happen to see, that there actually is a truth that really should not be denied, as it were. That was something that took hold. The authority of justice, not self-protection, not jury rigging or partisan interest or revenge, But the notion that there was an objective kind of justice, this was an authority that has functioned over the last couple of millennia. The authority of love, not favoritism for a particular group, but the generous desire to offer life to all people. These things have actually shaped the way we've made laws or asked our police to operate or in every other circumstance have told us what's really true. We've bowed down to them because they have a truth and a life value that is, I think, undeniable. 
Although, again, I say, keep your eyes open. People are getting better at denying them. But even when God's chosen people fail to respond to the call, the call does not stop. The call finds those willing to respond. That God's purpose will call forth those who want to cooperate with God. And it's interesting, God does not manipulate or coerce in any way. God invites and empowers. And I was trying to think of a good illustration of this, and the one I've come up with, which Pay has given me permission to share, is her love of dogs. Pay's my youngest daughter, and she loves dogs. As far as I know, from the first time she loved anything, she loved dogs. And uh, she was fascinated by our border collie, Kelpie cattle dog, Tig, who was around when she came into our family. And um, Pay was about four, I think, when we had to have Tig put down. And it was very moving in our lounge room. The, the vet came and the special needle and Pay was there just uh, comforting Tig as she breathed her last. And Pay's love for dogs didn't die with our dog, right? In fact, pretty much any dog that is willing to be loved by Pay will be loved by Pay. She will love it. And there was even an incident down at Manly Beach a couple of years ago where Pay did the right thing. She asked permission from the dog's owner uh, and went over to uh, talk with these two dogs and one of them snapped at her and took a little chunk out of her cheek. And uh, that was very traumatic. And for a few days, Pay was a bit wary around dogs, which is really sensible, right? But she continues to love dogs. It didn't take long before she opened her dog washing business in the local neighbourhood. And she's well known as the neighbourhood dog whisperer. And Tanya, who uh, lives down the, the road from us, who fosters rescue dogs, is now training Pay to do professional grooming which is really good. She's going to keep us in the manner which we've become accustomed. (laughs) Pay has an unrelenting love of dogs. Dogs see her and they know this somehow. And every dog that will allow her, Pay will love. And she even loves the ones that don't allow her to love them, but they miss out due to their fear and their unwillingness to draw near. And I think that's a bit like God's love for us. It's there for everybody. The only way you can miss out on it is if you decide not to, if you decide not to draw near. In this crisis moment of Isaiah's sense of faithfulness, or fruitfulness, I should say, it's made clear that long before the advent of Christ... The good news of the kingdom was always intended for all people everywhere. This hope of the eternal way of life has always been those, always been there for those who would find their hope in it. This invitation remains open to everyone today. We need simply to respond and find our hope in the God who has always done everything to welcome everyone. Always done everything to empower us to respond to this call to be God's people, to draw near and to follow Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your unrelenting love. We thank you that we need only turn and say yes and come near and you love us and that love 
comes to us in tangible ways. Help us to make that response, to not be filled with fear or apprehension, but to put our trust in you and to live from that place of trust, to discover all the good things you have for us, to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Let's sing our final song, a fitting crescendo to our service, How Great Thou Art. Let's stand and really fill our lungs. And I just want to say, it's so good to have Phaedra floatering in the uh, band now. Yeah, thank you, Phaedra. <laughs> and uh, even without uh, the guitarist here, holding your own well. Thank you, team. Very good. Let's sing. <laughs>